Hey, welcome to Eastlake. Welcome to Eastlake Online. For those of you who are watching online or via the app or on replays throughout the week, we're so glad that you are um, here. However you made it, if this is your first time you picked a great day to come check us out, we are on part two of a series we're calling How to Be Unlucky, a series on teenage dating. And it's been a, uh, a wild ride. If you missed last week, uh, there's a uh, recap at eastlaketricity.com slash talks, or if you download the app and kind of click on the talks button on the bottom, you'll be able to catch up <clears throat> with that. We, we said the premise of the series is essentially this. Jesus had some very interesting th- things to talk about, and um, in one of his teachings, he's on a, on a mountaintop, in, uh, in, it's called the Sermon on the Mount, that's the formal, formal thing, and I, I really do think, and I've said this before as a part of kind of his, his thing, that I, I don't think it was like a specific, I remember what Jesus said that day, I think that when Matthew sat down to write it out as one of his disciples, he wrote out, here's what I remember in my three years of following Jesus and hearing him talk, here's a summary of all of his teachings, Right? Um, and, uh, and he kind of put them all together in this kind of one expose thing on, on, in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, some thoughts on what it means to follow in the way of Jesus. And uh, to kick off that talk, or to kick off that piece, um, he goes through what are known as the Beatitudes. Um, and these are kind of famous, and if you grew up in church, you probably heard some version of uh, a form of these. Uh, and, and it basically... There's a flow, there's a rhythm, there's a, there's a pattern. You can see the pattern immediately. It's blessed are those who, blessed are those who, blessed are those who. And then, but the, the, the interesting thing about them is that they're almost oxymoronic in nature in, in terms of uh, what we typically think of a life that's blessed doesn't show up as what's actually there. Um, you wouldn't, you know, it, it, you're looking at something and, and these things don't match. It feels like if you are going to be teaching about how to do life well, it would look a little bit differently. For instance, he goes uh, in, in this version of it, verse uh, three, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, and ooh, that's a little hot. Sorry, guys. I'm going to try and get it closer to the cheek there. All right. Um, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are, uh, in, in, in uh, another take on it, they, they, they feel like Matthew maybe added in poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are, blessed are people who have nothing, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who have things to mourn about. In other words, if you have something to mourn about, that probably means that you've gone through some sort of suffering. So blessed are those who suffer. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the people who kind of um, aren't, aren't out there, aren't, aren't leading the front, aren't the personalities. They're the ones that kind of get walked on a little bit. Blessed are the meek who, when, when, when things happen, they're not the first one tooting their own horn going, that was me, I did that, I was part of that team, that was my idea. They're just kind of in the background letting other people get the glory. Uh, for they're going to inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Again, and probably in addition to this, hunger and thirst for righteousness, and, or, or the word for righteousness in, in Scripture, in all of Scripture, and a good way to actually read this, is this idea of justice. The, the, the interpretation of the Greek word for righteousness can also be justice. So blessed are those who hunger and thirst, who are desperate for a form of justice. Why would you be thirsty and hungry for justice? Probably because you are at the raw end of something you're experiencing injustice. So blessed are the lucky are those. And that, that first word of this, this blessed, we, we, we don't think of, um, blessed is not like a real, like, uh, word in our vernacular that we use a lot. So, but what it, the word that's translated there is almost like happy or oh the luck or oh the joy. Lucky are those who are poor in spirit. Lucky are those who have been on the wrong side of injustice um, for, for they will be filled lucky or happy. And so Jesus is basically with this oxymoronic kind of style saying, you're better off sort of being unlucky. Like there's a way in which unlucky is a positions you to listen to or be able to hear things that you might not otherwise hear. 
for, for my followers and, and for the people who are listening to me, if you have anything, you know, Jesus would say, if you have anything uh, to do with any of this, like I, I'm just telling you, if you feel unlucky, um, consider yourself blessed for that's a position to be in that actually you can learn something from. Lucky are the unlucky, if I could kind of put it in this way. Perhaps, and this is the, t- the walkaway point that we had from last week, perhaps being unlucky teaches us a lesson that is so incredibly hard to hear when we are dressed like a king. And I'll explain the dress like a king in just a moment. He didn't come up, by the way, with this on his own. I said last week we were going to look in an Old Testament sort of backdrop because um, any time that Jesus talks, uh, most of his language, most of his uh, analogies, most of his stories, most of his, uh, most of his you've heard it said, but I tell you this, are reaching back into the Old Testament history, into their Jewish scriptures, the book that they grew up reading. They went to church or the temple or cathedral or whatever. They went there and, and read these sort of things. And so as he's doing this, this would be common knowledge for them. He would know that, he, there, that he's pulling this verse and the backdrop behind what's going on with all of that. And so in an effort to kind of make that true for us, we said, well, we should look back and look at what would form in his mind or what would be in the backdrop of his mind as he's talking about lucky or the unlucky to be able to, to, to kind of play this out. What did they all know that we might not have known? And so there was a thing in the Old Testament wisdom books. These would be the wisdom of their ancestors compiled into the Holy Scriptures. Um, this would be um, any, any works by Solomon. So Proverbs, Psalms, uh, the, the Ecclesiastes, these are all considered to be these wisdom books. These would be the things that you would be given as an, as an adult to like train to your kids. They didn't have school systems. So make sure if you're going to grow up and raise good Jewish kids that they know all about the Ecclesiastes and the Proverbs and the Psalms. Make sure that they know that before they leave the house uh, so that they will live a life that has been in, uh, influenced by the wisdom of our ancestors, right? So in Ecclesiastes chapter nine, verse 11, I've seen something under the sun. This is the person, this is the, the, probably Solomon or maybe somebody, in, somebody who's had lots of going on in his life, has had all the money and all the things that you thought would bring fulfillment in life. And oftentimes he talks about this, is not, this has not bring, brought fulfillment to me. Uh, I've seen everything under the sun. Of all of the things that I've seen, the race, here's what I know. The race is not to the swift, the battle to the strong, nor does food come to those who are wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happens to them all. In other words, I've been alive long enough to know that sometimes the better team loses. Sometimes someone else's business succeeds when your idea was better. Of course, that's not how oftentimes it feels when we are on the top of fortune's wheel. And I introduced this idea that would not have been like this biblical thing that they would have had, but along the way, people have kind of used art to put into form visual images of an understanding of some of these principles. And this is what took place in about 500 AD after the, you know, Constantine and all that kind of stuff. This painter put together this fortune's wheel. We, we, we watch Wheel of Fortune because Pat said Jack and Vanna White, but this is a different thing. But essentially, the idea is the same, that life just happens to be a little bit of a chance and fortune spins her wheel and we find ourselves at some point on this wheel. We are either dressed as a king and on top of the world and feel lucky and blessed and a fortune is in our favor. Um, we are falling off a little bit. We were once king, but now we're not anymore. We're barely hanging on. Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe that's like the season of life. I'm barely hanging on right here. And, and everything that could go wrong did go wrong. And I got news from the doctor and it's not great and, and it's just chance, but it sucks and it's horrible to be at, and then this idea of this aristocracy or I'm, I'm this merchant, like I'm, uh, someday I will be king, someday I will have it. So we're, we're hopeful here, we're living the dream here, we re- we're reflective here, we used to
used to be here uh, or we're barely hanging on. And, and, and again, we go through seasons of life where we're on one of these things and we don't control this wheel. This thing just kind of happens to us. That was his way of saying, this is the, the mindset of Jesus going, um, what I know from my ancestors that life just kind of happens and when you're on top, it feels great. When you're on top, it feels like I earned this. I got here based on my wise decision-making and my ability to think well or process well or do things well. And when I'm down here, I'm frustrated. I'm just like, I just can't seem to do anything right. Everything that touches falls apart. So to show how much I think this was a thought pattern that was present in the worldview of Jesus, I want to talk through a parable today. I said last week, um, I think this comes from an Old Testament understanding, and I think it shows up in one of the parables of Jesus. And then next week, we're going to look at, like, what do you do with this? If this was true for Jesus then and, and, and his way of doing things and even influences or shines a light on or casts a new lens for these Beatitudes, then for us in 2021, what do we do with all of this? So we are going to walk through... Uh, a parable today that shows up in Luke chapter 16. If you're watching from home, you have your Bible or whatever, or if you have the notes on the, the, uh, on the app, you can kind of see. I'm going to put it all in, in one spot. Uh, and it's one parable that Jesus teaches. And uh, let me just preface this with, this is a very, very difficult parable. It's not even likable. I guarantee it's not one of your favorite parables that Jesus ever taught. I've never met somebody who's like, you know which one I really like? This one. And I've been like, that says more about you than it says about you know what I mean? So like, it's okay if you, if you read this and go, hmm, not great. Um, totally fine. The moral of this parable, and because every parable is, is fictitious, everything was made up, but the point of it was to try and get people to kind of see where they were at in this thing. Uh, and there's always a moral. There's always a point to it. And the moral can sometimes get lost in the questions that arise as a result of the telling of this story. Jesus tells a story. He's like, do you get the moral? And we're like, but wait, hold on. Um, like, how does that work? Like, I'm just a little lost. And so if that's the case, I understand. That's, that's totally fair. And if you're, if, you're not, if you're coming at this, and maybe this is the first time you've ever heard this parable, or you're not really a church person, um, then uh, you know, I, I get that. There's going to be probably more questions than answers. Listen, I feel like my role in this is just a tour guide. Like, I'm just walking through going, this is interesting. Look at this. This is, you know, this is the point of this. Uh, and I'm just the messenger, so don't kill the messenger. There we go. All right. I'm going to read through this parable in its entirety. Um, and then come back through it in detail more verse by verse, which is a little bit opposite of what I usually do. Usually I say, here's the verse, and here's what this means, the next verse, and then here's what this means, and all that kind of stuff. But I'm going to read through the whole thing at first, um, just so I can get it out there. And uh, anyways, you can tell I'm a little, not nervous about it, but just it's different. All right, verse 19, chapter 16 of Luke. Uh, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side or some translations bosom, which is always fun too. Um, The rich man also died and was buried. Next verse. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony uh, in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, uh, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. All right? And, and then that's, that's enough for uh, where this is at. Now, 
so you can see why I wanted to read through all of this. And, you know, what's the moral of this story, right? This is like, hey, wait a second. Hold on. Hades, Lazarus, uh, vindictive God. What, what's going on here? Full disclosure, there's part two to this response that has to do with prophets and words of warning for loved ones, but we're not going to go through that today. Um, we're just sticking with part one for today because there's plenty to work through even enough with this. So I would encourage you, if you're interested in that, you can deep dive that uh, on the rest on your own. But essentially, there are three characters in this parable. The first one is a rich man dressed in purple who we are supposed to have pity on, right? That we are, we are called to pity, which feels really relevant to us. We, we, have, done, we have done that before. Uh, Andrew, you got that picture for me? See, we, somebody dressed in purple who we are called to pity. We, we uh, as Cougar fans, we know what that's like. We, we see that and we're like, okay, that makes sense. That's character, you know, relevant character number one. Um, then there's, that's, that's just a small dig. That's fun. Uh, and then, then there's this, uh, this beggar in, in the story named Lazarus. Now, um, he, he, as we're going to find out in his story, there, there's some unique characters of him. Um, the, the, it's the contrast between the wealthy and the non-wealthy, right? The wealthy person, his wealth is obvious. He dresses in fine linen and eats out daily, not just like on weekends or date nights. He's just, he's just there, you know what I mean? And the obvious contrast is the beggar, who, by the way, is given a name in this parable, which almost makes it feel like it actually happened, except that we're, we're, it's, it's, he, he starts the parable in the same way he always does. There was once a, a man who, whatever, it's Jesus' way of saying once upon a time. And anytime you hear somebody go once upon a time, there was a, and even if they have names in the story, you kind of know that this isn't, isn't real. And what's interesting about Jesus' parables is almost all of, in fact, all of them remain, the characters in all of Jesus' parables remain unnamed. There was a rich man, there was a poor man, there was a father who had two sons, there was a farmer who, you know, sowed his, his, his things in a field. None of them are named with the exception of this one person. This is the only named person in any of Jesus' parables, and his name is Lazarus, which is a Latinized form of Eleazar, which is God is my help, right? So somebody who's characterized, who personifies somebody who lives under the edict or the mantra of God is my help. The only way I get help in this world in any, any way, shape, or form. Nobody helps me except God. God is my only help in this way. He's in such bad shape that the street dogs lick him, and, and he has nothing to say. It's almost like the, the dogs come up, and they're not like good dogs. They're like mangy, nasty dogs, and, and the story is the, the picture, the word picture that we get is they're licking him, and he's looking at you in the camera going, you know, what do you do, right? It's very like, if you like Family Guy, he's like a character from Family Guy. That's how like I kind of pictured him uh, in this way, and if, if you haven't watched Family Guy, you're saving yourself a bunch of time. That's great. Um, <laughs> The rich man is depicted in excessive, even outrageous terms, and Lazarus is numbered among society's expendables, a man who'd experienced nothing but downward mobility his entire existence. Everything keeps going up, and his income stays the same, which means it's going down. Everything that he does, life is only getting worse. It's not getting better as life goes on. It's just getting worse. And so the future of his mentality is um, everybody else is going to continue to get better, and by them getting better, my life gets worse. When the rich man dies in the story, he's given a proper burial. And that was a big thing for Jewish people. Um, they did not believe in, uh, you know, uh, incineration or any, any sort of whatever. They, they had proper burial things that was important to them. So he gets the proper burial. But when the beggar dies, he magically disappears in this parable in the same way that we tell our kids about how the garbage man takes our garbage away to the magical land of somewhere else, right? Where does the garbage go? It just goes uh, 
somewhere else. You know, we don't, we don't really know. It's a, it's a dump. Well, yeah, whatever. Anyways, that, that's essentially this, these angels come and sweep them away. This is the story. Then the predictable classic uh, thing comes, this reversal of fortune, right? It's very movie-esque. It's very, very much like, you know, the, the, the one, the movie that we've all seen where the kids constantly bully this one kid, but then that kid goes on to score the game-winning touch. He's like third string on the team, right? And he's like, I'm going to show up and work. We can't like kick him off the team, but you're never going to play. And as soon as that happens in a movie, you're like, he's going to play, right? He's not only going to play, he's probably going to win the state championship. They're going to throw him on his shoulders and scream, Rudy, Rudy, all that kind of stuff. So we know that this happens. We, we, we see this reversal of fortune sort of happen. Or, or the movie where the girl who is super nerdy loses the glasses and now super hot, right? We've all seen those movies. We know what this is like. That's what's taking place. And, but here's, here's interesting. Here's where it comes interesting. Ready? They're both in Hades, right? Which you would think one goes to heaven, one goes to hell. But they're both in what, what Jesus would use, he's pulling their Old Testament understanding about what happens after you die, which is a whole nother series on its own. Jewish people did not believe in an afterlife in the same way that a lot of Christians believe in an afterlife. For them, it was Hades, the place of nothingness, the place you go after you die. That was it. So they're both there, but there seems to be two ways to experience Hades, right? One is to experience in a level of comfort as the poor beggar man is, and then one in an experience of extreme discomfort or agony or torment or whatever. And they are located in Hades apart from each other, which I know is, wait, what does that mean? Is, that, is this, a, is this a, a vision of what Jesus thinks of heaven and hell and afterlife? Listen, again, don't get, we're getting lost in the particulars and missing the moral because again, what's the moral? And we lose sight of it because of confusing questions. I get it. Um, and now their, their location is important. They're apart from each other. Whereas previously in, in, the, in the real life, they were only separated by a gate. Now in the text, there's a great chasm between the two of them. Lazarus is experiencing in a blissful state while the wealthy man experiences as torment and agony. And in a state of helplessness, the rich man calls out to Abraham, who was known by the way in there, he's like Father Abraham is the father of our religion, the core of what we come, and known for being hospitable to even people who are strangers, right? The story is the angels come to his house and he brings them in and feeds them and does all this kind of stuff. And so he's known for being hospitable to other people. And so he, he, he's going to Father Abraham and kind of calling that on him. And the irony of one requesting mercy, having never really considered offering it when he sat atop the wheel dressed like a king. And the irony of the story is the person who had all the opportunities to be that kind of a person is now expecting that from somebody who was on the bottom of the wheel, uh, hanging on for dear life and asking them or asking him for a little bit of mercy. And I think it's important in this moment to remember the nature and the purpose of parables. Again, fictional stories inviting people. Here's the point of it. It's a fictional story, but invited people. Jesus would tell these stories to invite people to find themselves in the story. Which person do you think you are? That's the point. Anytime you read through a parable of Jesus, he was doing this in the moment for the people who were listening that day, but he also does it, I think, to us. Which one are you? 
Are you the older son who's bitter at the younger son for being invited back home? Or are you the younger son who's kind of gone and done his own thing and is now kind of questioning all of that and, and, and what, what is most important in life, right? These are not, these parables are not descriptions of the future, which was why it would be incorrect to say this was Jesus's picture of the afterlife. And we should base our theory of the afterlife based on this interpretation of this parable. Again, it's a fictional story. These are not descriptions of the future, but invitations to live differently in the present. Not description of the future, invitations to live differently in the present. The prodigal son didn't actually exist, but we've all wondered what it might look like to return home with our tail between our legs. Would we be accepted? Would we be welcomed? Surely we wouldn't be loved, right? When the parable of the sower highlights the various responses to the seed being thrown, one on the path, one on the dirt, one in the hard dirt, one in the great soil or whatever, it's not a lesson on proper farming etiquette, right? These are all fictional, inviting us to see our present circumstances in a little different ways. In this case, a story is being told to highlight another way of looking at what we learned last week. And I bring it up again just to say, this is why I think Jesus's Old Testament thought patterns are showing up in his New Testament parables. Perhaps being unlucky teaches us a lesson that is so incredibly hard to hear when we are dressed like a king. Jesus tells the story of somebody who was rich, who missed out on a teaching that the beggar got because his, his world was so noisy. He just, it's just, it's a tough spot to be in. Lucky are the unlucky for they get it sometimes when other people might not. Here's what I think is supremely important uh, about this Jesus teaching. It has to do with context. And it has to do more specifically with eavesdropping awareness. We're going to talk about eavesdropping awareness. Now, non-parents don't know this, but when you have a baby, before you leave the hospital, you have to take a class on eavesdropping awareness. They say, congratulations on your kid. We're going to teach you how to strap into a car seat. And by the way, we're going to teach you how to talk in such a way that you can talk to your kid without actually talking to your kid because they're listening to everything that you say all the time. All right? So we're going to train you to talk in this direction or to say things out loud or boy, I sure hope that Grayson figures out how to flip up the seat or flip down the seat when he's done using the restroom. Otherwise, that could re- re- there could be some consequences in store, right? And if you're really good at it, you figure out a way as a parent, if you have, especially if you have multiple kids, to talk to one kid in a way that all the kids understand that they're all implicated by this, right? In this house, Grayson, we do, and I'm picking on Grayson, I should, let me do Jovi. In this house, no, she's too, she's too good. I can't do that one. Uh, let's, do, uh, let's do Clive. In this house, Clive, we clean up after ourselves, don't we kids, right? Now, Clive is clearly the one that I'm talking to, but the insinuation is that everybody else is also listening and realizing there might be something in this for me. Jesus it was a master at this and does this frequently in the New Testament scriptures. He will speak to his disciples, the people who are there to hear from him in, in like a social pattern. This is who I'm supposed to be talking to because they've given up everything to follow me and are interested in what I have to say. But the message is not for them alone. I'm hoping that you all surrounding me, all of the skeptics, all of the people who are wondering, all of the Pharisees, all of the religious leaders, perhaps some of the Sadducees, maybe, the, maybe the, the political leaders of the day, you're hearing me talk to my disciples and getting a little bit more of a challenge of, what if I, 
what if I kind of took some of that? What if I, what does that have to do with me, even though I've got the safety of the distance of, well, he's not talking to me, but he kind of is. We, and we do this. Listen, every time that we read scripture, we are eavesdropping on conversations that he had with his disciples. He's not saying it to you. He's just saying it to them. And in a sense, we get it and we learn it and go, okay, now we are reading this, interpreting it from the safety of he's not speaking directly to me, but I need to do something with this. This is the art of reading scripture. We are, we are used to this. It just becomes more obvious in this sort of thing. So Jesus in chapter 16, as Luke prepares it, right? Luke is writing his, he writes this story in the, of the history and the teaching of Jesus. He's writing to a friend. He's saying there's a lot of information out there. Let me try, kind of classify it for you and put it in the kind of an order that I think it, it is appropriate to be read in or understood in. He has just finished up um, the, the parable of the uh, shrewd manager. Um, and he, the, the shrewd manager, if you, if you don't remember right, it was this rich, this rich guy who hired this guy to kind of handle his money for him, and, and things didn't, went south. And so then he kind of began to kind of pay off other people and, and uh, to kind of develop so that when he got fired, which he was going to get fired, he would have used and leveraged his money to kind of uh, create friendships and relationships so that he would have a future and, and, a, and a, a way to do things, which is kind of shady, but... He's commended as being a shrewd manager. And he's telling this, by the way, he makes very specific, Luke makes very specific mention. He's talking to his disciples in this way. And to his disciples, he's saying this, smart people leverage the temporary for the eternal or for the permanent. Smart people take something temporary like the power of money and they leverage it for the sake of the eternal. These relationships, they're gonna pay off for him later you should do that. You should do whatever. And money's just one example, but you should leverage the temporary for the sake of the eternal. And he's, again, but again, he's speaking to his disciples, knowing that other people are listening in, in on this. He has just uh, come through uh, a, a, a spot where Jesus has been attacked for, um, by the religious leaders of the day for hanging out with the deplorables, for hanging out with people for, uh, who, do not belong, who would not qualify to enter into the temple, and yet you eat with them. Like, what are you doing? You're like, you're validating their behavior. Do you know that that person's sinful? I mean, you're, when you eat with them, you're saying, it's okay, you're fine. They're like, you're, you're lax. You're lowering the standards of obedience to the law. Like, how dare you lower this thing out to them? And he begins to talk about money in this way, right? And then he goes on after this parable to the true manager, and he uses a couple of phrases that we're all familiar with, and, and I've used them in, in talks on, on money before. If you've been a part of a, a money series here, he's like, whoever can be trusted with little can be trusted with more. That's a good principle for life, right? That's a good thing you should, as parents should teach your kids or whatever. Nobody can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and mammon or God and money or God and wealth or God and stuff. It's all the same thing. And then it says this in Luke chapter 16, verse 14. So he's already been criticized for dealing and working with and talking with and accepting as disciples people who do not qualify in the religious system of the day. He's talked about money to a certain degree, right? Some of the aspects of it. And then this is what happens. Verse 14, the Pharisees who loved money, this is Luke writing about this situation, heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. The Pharisees who loved money, we're sneering at Jesus. Luke inserts this in here to highlight the fact that they haven't left. They're still hanging around. They're still eavesdropping. They attack Jesus. He begins to say, I'm gonna to turn to my disciples and teach something to them about money. 
And then in this moment, he turns back around and they're still there trying to kind of either catch him in a trap, trying to, to do anything to eliminate his influence on other people so that they wouldn't believe his version of it. And this, uh, this idea of who loved money, this is important. Luke, the author, uses one Greek word to describe them, and this isn't thrown in for fun. This isn't a verb with a predicate, right? These people who love money, and in the same way that it would be like these people who love money, as well as crosswords and Papa John's pizza and all this kind of stuff, it's not that. It's one word. It's the Pharisees, these, or the money-loving Pharisees. That would be a better way to actually read this. Those money-loving Pharisees, which kind of sounds like a good cuss word. If you're like, it's an appropriate one with kids who are, are awareness, that you're, they're eavesdropping on you, so you have to be, again, aware of what you're saying because they're always listening. This is great. These money-loving Pharisees, right? It just feels good. It runs off your tongue really well. Um, they, again, they had charged Jesus with the, you know, relaxing the obligations of the law, and now he shows them they have relaxed the obligations of the law by neglecting the ethical demands of the law and the disposition of wealth on behalf of the needy, which is one way in which to love their neighbor. They're saying, you relax the law. You're, you're not holding people to high enough standards. You're not obeying the law to its T. And then he's gonna go in to talk about money, and to these money-loving Pharisees, He's showing them that you in this area have relaxed the law. You're called to love your neighbor. And let me tell you about a story of a rich man who had a poor man right outside of his gate and walked by him every day. And he didn't do anything bad to him. He didn't mock him. He didn't make him poor. He just didn't do anything to help him in any sort of way. Why? Because he was so obsessed with other things about himself a money-loving Pharisee. They sneer at him, hoping to eliminate the possibility that others will regard him as a legitimate agent of God and an interpreter of scriptures. More on that later, because that's going to come back and be an important piece of what his critique is about the Pharisees. And of note, to say this, this idea of these money-loving Pharisees, something to note about Pharisees is they weren't considered particularly wealthy. Um, this isn't a great diatribe against wealth. So if you're reading this as this is God of Jesus was anti-money, he's anti-rich people, this isn't that at all. Like if he was gonna do that, there would have the Sadducees would have been a far better target for his vindictive kind of quote, right? So he's he's not saying um, these money, all they care about is is money in this way. Um, he's not, this isn't a diatribe against wealth or like people who retire early because they made a bunch of money on GameStop. There's something different going on here. In common parlance of the day, in other words, the vernacular of the day, money lovers, that term, the word that he uses there, was used in tandem with statements of self-glory. With wealth was a sign of status and honor. Wealth was about social status Wealth was the most visible indicator, as it still is today, that you're on top of the fortune wheel. How do we know when somebody, when somebody shows up in a new car and new this, or they just bought a new house, wow, they, we say this, wow, they must be doing well. How, how nice for them, how lucky for them that it worked out. It's a very visual indicator that they find themselves at the top of the wheel. And these people... Are, he's, he's basically saying this, they're obsessed with getting to the top and they think that they can get their way there based on their decisions. Many of them maybe find themselves on the left-hand side doing pretty good, but not quite there, but I'm hopeful that I'll get there. I'm not quite there, but I wanna get there. In this pursuit, and for, this, for their culture, being rich really wasn't, 
that much, of, not, it wasn't even as much in our culture. If you got rich, there was like the skepticism toward how'd you get it, this like evil eye. But it was, it was, it was a, um, uh, a, a pressure to be in a position of honor. It was very much an honor-shame society. So they were, they were pushed to be honorable, and, and wealth was one indicator of that. But they're so obsessed with looking good. They're so obsessed with having it all together, to being a source of authority, to be somebody that people go to, that people respect, to be somebody who's invited to every meal that anybody throws a party, we gotta make sure that so-and-so gets invited. They wanted to be that person. Their lives were so obsessed with that that oftentimes it came with the neglect of people who needed their help. And so this is a critique on that sort of mentality. He has repeatedly shown the Pharisees to be persons who neglect the poor for the sake of their own community status and social standings. And as Jesus goes on to say, their status seeking is nothing other than idolatry. He's calling into question a way of life embraced by the Pharisees that is focused on the quest for external approval or living on top of fortune's wheel rather than on character and behavior that are valued by God. Because their hearts are not oriented towards God's purpose, they are considered to be, and I like this interpretation, because I don't think Jesus is anti-Pharisee, right? I, think, I don't think Jesus is anti-rich people. I think that what it is, is he's pointing them and trying to get his followers, his disciples, who probably range all over the place on that wheel, right? You've got some of them who are decently doing all right. I think that Peter was okay. I mean, fishing business or whatever. I think some of them were poor. I think Matthew was probably pretty rich, pretty well-educated. I think Luke was a doctor. He's probably well-educated. So from his disciple standpoint, he's not anti-wealth, but what he is is this. Listen, that worldly association with, with it, which, what, which um, most people go, this is what the goal is. This is what you're supposed to be. This is the height. This is what it looks like to be on top of fortune's wheel. They are unreliable witnesses of the kingdom. He is hoping that his followers will look at Pharisees who are treating everything as um, self-glorification and moving up the ladder and someday getting to the top of the wheel and saying, listen, if if you're listening to me, I just want you to know when you see this happening, for those of you who find yourself on the bottom of the wheel or on, like questioning and looking up and wishing you could be like them, just so you know, they are unreliable witnesses of the kingdom. When a witness is unreliable, they have things to say, but you just don't, take, you don't put that much weight in them, right? In a court of law and unreliable witnesses, we can hear it, but like, just don't believe it. Like, it just, there's something there that's not right, and, it, and maybe it's not their fault. Maybe they don't know any better. They're just glory-seeking. They're more concerned with moving up or staying up than concerned for their neighbor. So beware. Beware of them. So if you've ever felt like religion is only for those at the top of the wheel, or if you've ever used religion as a means of getting top of the wheel, you probably picked that up from someone or some, you probably picked that up somewhere or from someone. And just so you know, I think Jesus would say, and I, I would say the same thing too, those are unreliable witnesses of the kingdom. That is not exactly what it's supposed to look like. 
which brings us hope for those of us who find ourselves on the bottom rungs of the wheel and is a challenge and something to think about to those on top of the wheel or making their way up there. Like, I think you should work hard and try and get a good life. And I'm not against you buying a house that fits your family and a car, all that kind of stuff. It's, I'm, I'm pro that. And I don't think that Jesus is anti-rich. He's just saying, listen, that's an unreliable way to say that's the goal of everything. There's something more involved in, in that than this. Unreliable witnesses in this way. And I, I think that's a challenge then for us. Like, I, I think that this is why um, the, the problem that we have is for us, the, the external visibility of wealth so often does designate us at, at being at the top and, and we feel like we must be doing good, which is why it's so hard when life isn't good and yet we are wealthy. And if you've ever been wealthy and your life isn't good, you hear phrases like, well, money can't buy you happiness. And you go, well, if you're down here, you go like, I'd like to try. Let's see how it looks, right? <laughs> Sounds pretty good. Um, and when you're up at, up, up at the top, when you realize that I'm not happy or that I'm not content or that I'm not fulfilled and, it's, and, and you go, yeah, but the, the problem is I just don't have enough. That must be the problem. And, and I, gotta have, I gotta have a little bit more than what I currently have. And if you could hear the message, it would say that that is an unreliable witness to the kingdom. That that voice, whatever it is, maybe it's the magazine, maybe it's Instagram, maybe it's your friends, maybe it's the people that you work with or the people you bounce ideas off of in terms of money or somebody that you respect, whatever. I'm just telling you, it's an unreliable witness to the kingdom. Jesus, in the way of Jesus, looks a little bit different than that. That that kind of reliability, that's just not going to come in that way. Listen, that wheel moves, and we have no control over it. It's chance. It's lady fortune deciding to just move the wheel and sometimes you're on top and sometimes you're on bottom and a lot of times you're on either side and I, I can't control it and I just, I think it's, it's, a, it's an invitation to hear and by the way, it's a message that is so much easier to hear when you're on the bottom or on the sides. It's really, really hard to hear when you're lucky, when things are working out for you because perhaps being unlucky puts us in a position to hear something that we would not otherwise hear when we're, when we're at the top, when, we're, when things are working for us. And so Jesus tells his disciples within earshot distance and really for the purpose of inviting all of these people who have bought into the idea for their entire life of move up, move up, move up, do something to get you there. This is gonna be it. This is gonna be the fulfillment. And when you do that, you neglect the ethical responsibility of the kingdom to care for those less fortunate who are on the bottom side of the wheel than you. So it's an invitation to us to also participate as eavesdroppers of this and remind ourselves of where we're at. All right. Next week, we finish this off. So if this, was, if this was present in Old Testament wisdom theology, and it shows up in New Testament kind of parables that Jesus is trying to, to do with this, how, do we, how do, we, do we make ourselves unlucky? Do we try and be unlucky? How do we, how do we, nobody wants to be at the top of the wheel going, you know what, I'd love to be at the bottom. I'd love to have horrible news. That way I'll learn, right? Um, and you couldn't even shift that if you wanted to. Um, because again, it's, it's outside of our control in that way. 
So then, then how do we hear? If, if, if we're in an unfortunate position being up there, what is it that we can hear? Or, or how do we open up our ears to, to more of that? So if you come back next week, we'll finish this off, this series off with part three of that. And I hope that you do, or I hope that you watch it if you're um, f- finishing up there. So uh, there's not a real large takeaway for today other than like, this is, I think this is something to wrestle with and be like, oh man, where, where am I at and what lies have I bought into in terms of what, what this looks like? And, and am I, have I trusted an unreliable witness of the kingdom? And uh, where do I see myself? This is an invitation to think differently and to live differently in the present, as all of Jesus' parables are.